<laughs> and sometimes when I don't. But oh, she knows I always want to. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. As we continue preaching through this little letter that Paul had written to the church in Colossae, a church that had uh, <clears throat> false teachers who had come in teaching heresies to them that salvation was based upon our trust in Christ plus something else. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that there is nobody who's good. There's none good. There's none of us that measure up to God's standard. And God's standard is perfection, absolute perfection. And none of us meet that criteria. The Bible says that all of our good works are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And that as a result of our sin, we abide under the rightful wrath of God. That without some way to make ourselves right with God, the only verdict is guilty and the sentence is death. But God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus, to bear our sins. And there upon the cross, <clears throat> he made the ultimate sacrifice. He hung there on that cross in our place. He died the death that we deserved. And so the, the church in Colossae had heard this gospel preached. That not only was he crucified, but on the third day he rose from the dead. And that he lives today. All the religions in the world, all their founders, lie in graves where their bones rot. But the tomb in which Jesus was placed is empty. On that third Day On that first Easter morning, the stone was rolled away. Not so he could get out, but so that we could get in and see that it was there. He's not here. As the angel told the women as they came to this, said, he's not here. I, I love the, the, the way the angel puts it. It says, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, why are you here? You know he's not here. He's, he's risen just like he said. And so this gospel was preached to the church in Colossae. And the false teachers came along. The Gnostics who claimed to have a, a superior knowledge to the average everyday Christian. And they said, yes, you must believe and have faith in Christ in order to be saved. But... You also must be circumcised. You must, all, must, must also keep the law. You must keep the dietary laws. You must do all these things. And this is the same thing that the Judaizers in the book of Galatians that Paul dealt with there. And, and you know, it's the same throughout the history of the church. Throughout the history of the church, there have been two things that have plagued the church from the very beginning. And I say plagued because I'm going to say that one of these is not really as much of a plague as you think it is. And that is persecution. From the very beginning, Jesus told his disciples, he says, in this world, you will be hated for my name's sake. And so from the very beginning, there has been persecution. There has there has been 
Christian upon Christian upon Christian who has been martyred for their faith. Someone once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But the other thing is false teaching. False teaching has permeated the church. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians and he sets them straight. And the theme of the book of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. That he doesn't need my help. My salvation is not about me. Your salvation is not about you. Our salvation is about the glory of God. And that's what Paul is, is trying to help them see that Christ is all we need. That's it. He is sufficient. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient? Or do you think that you must believe in Christ, but then your, your performance helps? You know, as long as you go to church enough, as long as you read your Bible enough, as long as you pray enough, you can do all those things and die and go to hell. Did you know that? It's Christ and Christ alone. Christ alone. And so the practical truth that Jesus is the only and all-sufficient Savior, and as such, He is the source of our life, is now being applied specifically to a specific groups of people, household groups is what we're going to see here uh, in this passage. Look at me in chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as, men, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul here, <coughs> after expressing and preaching and teaching about the fact that the, the, of the sufficiency of Christ, not only in saving us, but in allowing us to live the kind of life that is pleasing to God. Remember, that's what he prayed back in chapter 1. He prayed that this church would know how to live a life worthy and pleasing to God. But we can't do that. But there is one who can. And that's what Paul's point is. Uh, only in Christ do we find the power to, to carry out the commands that Christ has here. You know, Paul tells us over in chapter uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at it in a minute, that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Well, I got news for you. I can't do that. I cannot. Do Paul tells me, uh, Jesus tells me that I am to love you as he has loved me. I can't do that. By the way, neither can you. But see, there's a point in the fact that Jesus continuously and Paul continuously tells us to do things they know we can't do to point us to the one who can. 
to point us to Christ. So Christianity presents a new purpose, doing all things to the glory of God. The only way for us to explain what we just read here in, in 318 through 4.1 is if you look back at chapter 3 and verse 17 where Paul says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Christ Himself is our example. Christianity supplies the only true pattern for God-glorifying conduct on the part of the groups that He has listed here. It is only as we abide in Christ, it is only as we are in union with Christ, because He Himself is our example. As the bridegroom, He loves His church. He is the standard for the love of Christian marriage. Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How much does he love the church? He died for it. Not only does he die for it, but he lives for it. And he ever intercedes for us today. So he is our example there. Uh, in obedience to his earthly parents and to his heavenly father, he gives the example of patient uh, 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 Submission to authority. We look at the, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, because that was the Father's will. And stooping to wash the disciples' feet. And by his death on the cross, he exemplified the heart of a servant. And actually, when you see there in verse 22 that word bond servants, that word is actually slave that's the actual word that should be there, is the word slave. You know, there's a difference in a servant and a slave. You see, a servant <clears throat> may work for you, but he may have time where he does his own thing. A slave does not. A slave is the sole possession of his master. <clears throat> he has no life outside his master. And, and, and but that's why Paul refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. This is why you and I are to be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here, he, he says that, that one of the things that a, of a slave is that he has no life of his own. You think about that night in that upper room, but the night before his crucifixion, when Jesus, after supper had been, had been eaten, he, he, he took off his clothes and he put an apron on. He grabbed a basin of water and he went to each one of the disciples and he washed their feet. Now I want to tell you something, folks. I don't even like touching my own feet. I don't want to touch anybody else's. But let me tell you something. This one who knelt on his knees before Peter and John and James and Judas and washed their feet. That is the same God who said, let there be light. You understand that? This is the one that Isaiah saw enthroned on the throne of glory with the rainbow around him and the, and the four living creatures that holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's the same God that is kneeling and washing their feet. That's the same God that hung on a cross when they said, come down and we'll believe you. When they said he saved others, let him save himself. But you know what he did? He died because he was obedient to his father. So he is our example. And when what's so striking about what Paul says in this passage is not so much the challenge that it presents to us as we begin to discover the cost of 
being a Christian in our relationships, but it's, it is that such relationships are so very different from the world we live in, from the culture we live in. Listen, I want to tell you that verse 18 right there, feminists hate that verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's a command from God. That's not a suggestion. That's not an option. It's a command. The world that we live in is different from us. Let me rephrase that. The world that we live in, we are to be different. We are called to be different. We are called out. The Bible clearly teaches that a biblical marriage is only between one man and one woman. Not between a man and a man, not between a woman and a woman. That is not marriage. That is an, that is an abomination. But, but the world outside doesn't see that. And when you and I stand in here and we say we believe in the biblical foundations of marriage that is a man and a woman forever, the world says we don't like you for saying that. And we have to say, I don't care. I don't care. But this is what makes us different in this world. Marriage is to be to the glory of God. The idea of submission is unpopular in our contemporary culture. Now turn with me back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5. And notice what Paul says here. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 22. <clears throat> okay, now in, in 3.18 Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. In 5.22 of uh, Ephesians, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The idea of submission, the relationship of Christian marriage is radically transformed when you have a relationship with Christ, when He is uh, involved in this. And, and notice that he says, in the Lord. A woman's relationship with Christ makes a world of, of difference in how her relationship is with her husband. It's just that simple. Uh, but, but let's not forget what he says here. A man's treatment of his wife is to be an extension of what I have become in Christ. Notice what he says here in Ephesians. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now listen to me, ladies. You think submission is hard? Try doing what we're called to do. There's more responsibility on us, which is where it should be. In the way that God has ordained things. Paul tells right here, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself the Savior. A man's treatment of his wife is an extension of what we ourselves have become in Christ. But then notice there he says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
We see the family within God's family. We see how a personal person's relationship with Christ leaves its mark on every other relationship in which we belong. One of the Puritans used to say that every home should be nothing more than just a little church. That's what it is. A little church. But we see that families are the cradle of society and civilization. Yet we see in our families that uh, we, we have begun to see the breakdown of both. Have you ever wondered why Satan has tried so hard to destroy families? Tried, tried so hard to destroy homes? Tried so hard to destroy the biblical concept of marriage? It is in order that the plan of God might be misused, that we might not understand it. And we look at this and we say, well, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. Submission's a hard thing. Do you know that the word submission actually means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of another? To voluntarily do that. That's what submission is. Submission is not something you're made to do. Submission is something you volunteer to do. Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not provoke your children. He says, bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service or men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do heartily as uh, for the Lord and not for men. In other words, it says when I have a job and I go on to that job, I am to do that job, not to please my boss, but to please my Lord. And I want to tell you something, that will make a world of difference in your job, in how you see your job, and what your, your attitude is towards this. Uh, a slave in submission to Christ is called to a genuine submission and devotion to their masters. And Paul is calling for this behavior. And that is radically different than what we see in the world. See, one of the things that goes on in our world is this right here. I have rights. I have a right to do and I have a right to not do. Believer... Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And let me let you in on a little secret you may have missed. You don't have any rights. You know why? You're a slave. And a slave has no rights. None. None whatsoever. If a slave in those days had gone to his master and says, Look, I've been working six days. I've been working 12 hours a day. And I'm tired. And I'm taking tomorrow off. That would have probably been the last thing he ever said. Because his head would have literally been separated from his shoulders. Because your slave does not demand anything from their masters. But husbands, wives, children, slaves, masters, it is only by God's saving and transforming grace in Christ that we are made willing and able to comply with what he has called here. But let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, you show me a wife who is in submission to Christ and I'll show you a wife who's in submission to her husband. You show me a man who is in submission to Christ, and I'll show you a man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church. You show me a child that is taught to be in submission to Christ, and I'll show you a child that's in, that is obedient to their parents. You show me a slave or an employee or whatever you want to call them, bond servants, any of them. You show me one that is in submission to Christ, and I'll show you one that is in submission to their masters. It's just that simple. Paul says there, as is 
uh, as in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, as he is to the Lord. Are you in submission to Christ this morning? Wives, are you? Are you willing to, 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 to say, lay aside and say, you know what? I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my world. He is my everything. And because I love him, because I'm in submission to him, I will submit to the one he has called me to submit to. Husbands, are you willing to say, because of my relationship with Christ, I am willing to love my wife to the point of death? Not just to the point of death. But to the point of teaching your wife. You see, we as husbands, you realize that when I get to heaven and I stand before God, that I'm going to give an account to him for my wife, for my children, for my grandchildren. He's going to say, I placed all of these under the, the umbrella of your authority. What'd you do with them? Did you teach them? Do you teach your wife? You see, I'm the, I'm the priest of my home. I am the one. And husbands, every one of us must understand this, that we have a responsibility to teach our families. You know, the, somebody has, has said, I read this the other day, that 98% of fathers who go to church, their families follow. But the father goes first. The father is to lead. And I'll tell you something. You may be a father. You may be a husband. Your family will follow where you lead. They will. They may not know they are, but they will. But let me ask you a question. Where are you leading them? Are you leading them to the throne of God? Or are you leading them to the throne of the world? Where are we leading them? But as, as we are in submission to Christ, Paul says... This, this is the, the, the radical difference that will exist between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. We will be different. Notice what he's looking at chapter 4 and verse 3. At the same time, Paul says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which I have, which, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, Paul mentioned something here, but I don't think we've really talked about. Paul wrote this letter, as he did the majority of his letters, from prison. Paul had been arrested. He was chained. He was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard for his preaching of the gospel. We must understand that to follow Christ and live the kind of way he calls us to live. It's not just our unsaved neighbor that's going to hate us. It's the lost world. And that involves everyone. We have this idea. I have often said that I believe that we Christians in America, we are God's spoiled children. We have this idea that I have a right. The Constitution gives me the right to assemble in this church. But I want to tell you something. The Constitution does not give you that right. God does. God does. And we must understand that, that, that the world outside, they don't care what God says. 
You understand that? They don't care. If they did care, there would be no gay rights. There would be no abortion. All of these things would be gone if they cared what God thought, but they don't. So Paul here, he says, look, he says, I have shown you how Christ is sufficient for your salvation, but I am showing you how Christ is not only sufficient to keep to get you saved, he is sufficient to keep you saved. He is sufficient to help you live the kind of life that is pleasing to God. And now he moves on about, uh, Paul moves from applying what he has been saying about a union with Christ in the personal life of believers to the impact of the gospel on an unbelieving world. We are not called to just meet in here, hear the preaching, go home, and then act like nothing goes on until the next time we meet together. That's not what we're called to do. We are called Jesus. The last thing he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not tell everybody how great your church is. Not tell everybody how great your preacher is. Not tell everybody how great your, your, your youth program is. Not tell everybody how great your music is. But tell everybody how great your God is. This is where we failed. We don't go and preach the gospel. And the Colossians, that like us, they had become so distracted by the false teachers. And they had become so focused on themselves that they had forgotten that they were called to be salt and light in this world. Called to be salt and light in this world. And the same thing happens in our churches today. And this is why it's so important to keep Christ as the center of our focus. <clears throat> salt and light. You know, those are two very interesting things. Yesterday on the way over here, we were listening to John MacArthur on the radio. And he was talking about being salt. You know, now I love salt. I can't eat anything without salt. I probably should, but I can't. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to pour salt in my hand, walk around and eat it. Yeah, I'll pay for it someday. But here's the thing. You know, salt is one, a great, a wonderful thing. Because salt brings flavor to things that are bland. Does your life bring flavor to a bland world? You know, salt, if you've ever had a wound and poured salt in it, that's not real. That's not very pleasant. But you see, this world, when people are confronted with their sin, and it says that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts to the very core of who we are. And we pour salt in, and it's painful. But when we confront sin, now, how many of you enjoy pain? Anybody? None of us do. So when we confront sin and we pour salt on it to help them see, you know, pain is a good thing. Did you know that? We all, we all hate pain, but yet pain is a good thing. You know what pain does? Pain tells my brain there's something wrong. Without pain, we'd be in trouble. That's, that was the problem that lepers have. They could feel no pain. And so we need to understand. But you know what else salt does? Salt preserves. It preserves. We live in a world that is decaying. It's getting worse by the day. And you know what? It's going to continue to get worse and worse. 
and we are to be a preserving influence in this world. But we sometimes, as these Colossians did, sometimes we get so focused on ourselves, so focused on what goes on within these four walls. And don't get me wrong, it's important what goes on in these four walls. We are commanded to meet together. We are commanded to sing together and to pray together and to, to hear and, and, and preach the Word of God. But we must go out the doors with it. And not leave it here. It must go with us. And so Paul here, uh, he, one of the most striking features of the extraordinary expansion of the early church was the link between gospel preaching and fervent prayer. We don't understand. And, and, and I, I, I'll tell you a minute why I know this. I'll tell you why we do not know the extent of the of how important prayer is. Now, I don't believe in the power of prayer. What I do believe in is the power of the one to whom we pray. Okay, there's a difference. But we need to understand, prayer is, does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And we must, and Paul here, he's calling on these Colossians to pray. Uh, we, we, we need to understand that not only are we to pray, but Paul says that we are to do so being watchful in it with thanksgiving. <clears throat> I, I was listening to a guy the other day on a podcast, and <clears throat> he was talking about the decline of the church in our age. And he said, I don't understand why, <coughs> I don't understand why with all the resources we have, why the church cannot have the power that it once had. And the guy he was talking to hit it right on the nail. The head, the, he, he said, let me tell you what's wrong. He said, if you want it like they had it, you got to do it like they did it. And he said, they did not do it with flashing lights and loud music. He said they didn't do it with 40-minute song service and five-minute preaching services. He said they did it with two or three-hour preaching services. Okay? So, y'all ready for that? <laughs> y'all ready for me to preach two or three hours? <laughs> That's how they did it. Paul says, look, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It, it, it carries the sense of being alert and aware of the circumstances in which we live. Now, I told you that I don't believe I can prove that many church members do not understand the importance of prayer. You know how I know that? Because last night we had a prayer meeting and hardly any idea was here. Now, I know some had health issues and stuff like that. So no one, but there were some could have been here that weren't. And, but it's not like, it wasn't just like that last time, last night. It was like that the time before, the time before, the time before. I will be honest with you. I do not understand how we can have a prayer meeting in this church and every single member of this church not be here. I don't understand that. And the, but the answer is we don't understand what Paul is talking about here. The importance of prayer. You know, one of my heroes of the preachers, Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers, <sighs> preached at New Park Street Church Chapel in London, England, back in the 1840s and 50s. Charles Spurgeon had a ministry that, to this very day, 
is expanded across the world. But even in his own day, <clears throat> he was hated by the majority of the people in London, especially those who ran the saloons and the brothels because he tried to shut them all down. And it's an interesting thing that the day of his funeral, they did shut down and they all went to his funeral. Of course, they asked one saloon keeper, said, I'm surprised you. He said, I'm just here to make sure he's dead. <laughs> but you know what? If he, if he could have heard that, he would have taken that as a compliment. But listen, all the things that Spurgeon did, but one day he was showing some folks around who were visitors there, and, and they asked him, they said, they said, Mr. Spurgeon, what is the secret to the success of your ministry? How is it that you have such power in this church? How is it that you have such influence here, in, not only here in London, but across the world? And London, uh, Spurgeon took them down to a third-story basement. And down in that basement, there was a group of people. You know what they were doing? They were praying. Do you know what their only function in that church was? Praying. That's what they did every day. Every service, they prayed. He said, there's the secret. He said, it's not that I'm so great. He said, because I'm not. He said it's because they know how to pray. And Paul understood this. Paul understood uh, that, that between gospel growth and fervent prayer, there's power. There's power to influence the world around us. In its deepest sense, prayer is a very tangible expression of our communion with God through Christ. In which every answer becomes a catalyst for our ever-deepening appreciation of God and His grace. <clears throat> I'll never understand an unthankful Christian. I'll never understand a Christian that just constantly complains. Let me tell you something, folks. The Bible teaches that at one time, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead. Not sick. Dead. And there was nothing I could do. But one day, Christ came. And you know what he said? He said, Bobby, come forth. You know what I did? I got up, just like Lazarus did. And he says, I'm going to give you new life. Well, Lord, what did I do? He said, you didn't do anything but sin. <laughs> he said, I'm not doing this because of you. He said, I'm doing it because of me. And he gave me life. He gave me purpose. You know, Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me will never die. He said, even when you die, you won't be dead. Isn't that wonderful? You know, that, that I could be standing up here preaching, and I've always thought that probably the most glorious thing that could ever happen to me, of course, y'all might not enjoy it too much, was for me to stand up here and die while I'm preaching. But I'll promise you, before this body hits the floor, I'll be bowing at the feet of Christ. You know why? 
because of him, not because of me, not because I'm good, not because I've done anything good, not because I preach, but because of Christ. And so Paul, <coughs> he, he says here that the deepest sense of every prayer, he says we are to do it with thanksgiving. How can I be anything but thankful to God? That he didn't have to save me, that he did not have to give me life, that he did it just simply because he chose to do it. That's it. That is it. Paul says that we are to remember those who proclaim the gospel. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul here is praying. Last night and when we had our prayer, you know, the ladies go to one part and the men come in here. And, and I told the ladies and I told the men, I said, look, there's something I want us to begin to pray. All the other things we want to pray about, we pray about. But one thing in particular is this. And exactly what Paul says right here, that God would open a door for us to take the gospel to this community that needs it so desperately. And so we begin to pray. And this is what Paul says, <clears throat> his particular concern as he asked the Colossians to pray for him was the relation to his ability to spread the gospel. Can I tell you something? And, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I need you to pray for me every day. All the time. Every day. All the time. I pray for you too. But I need you to pray for the pastor. Not because I'm special, but because I'm not. <laughs> you understand that? That's why I need you to pray for me. I need you. We need to pray for one another. And Paul says, at the same time, pray for us that God would open a door for the word. Do you know there are people in this community that are lost and on their way to hell for eternity who have never heard the gospel? And there's two churches right here. And yet there are people out here that have never heard the gospel. Now, they may have heard about Christ. They may have heard about the churches, but they've never heard the gospel. We've got to make sure that we understand that when, when, when Paul here, when he prays that a door would be open for the word. God's word, not mine. I'm not called to tell people about me. I'm not called to tell people about the church. I'm called to tell people about Christ. <clears throat> and Paul's concern was that they would pray for him in the relation to his ability to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel, praying that God would give opportunities to him to proclaim the message of Christ. It's a healthy reminder that if we are to see the success of any gospel ministry, it needs the support of God's people. We need to be praying for one another. And Paul says, this is what I'm asking you to do. And in verse 5 and 6, he says, walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here, Paul is urging uh, prayer specifically for the success of the gospel and for those believers to live and to speak in a way that will make an impact on the unbelieving world around them. Listen. You and I are called to preach the gospel. That involves words, by the way. 
That involves, I, and I say that because I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, on Facebook, I see people putting something on there that says, always preach the gospel, and if necessary, and only if necessary, use words. That is the most ignorant thing I've ever heard in my life. That's like saying, always feed the hungry, and if necessary, use food. Listen, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul says, how will they hear unless one is sent? And if one is sent, he must preach. By the way, that's all of us. I'm not the only one called preaching here. All of us are called to preach the gospel. And so Paul says, listen, <clears throat> we need to understand that the, but, but when we go out and we preach the gospel, we also must live a life that backs it up. Now, we're not perfect. We all sin every day. But there's a difference in someone who sins and someone who lives in sin. We all fall. We all falter. We all must run to Christ in confession and repentance to Him for that. <clears throat> but when I tell somebody, Christ loves you. And because Christ loves you, I love you. I have to show them that. Now, we must understand here, and, and this is very important, that the world's love and biblical love are two different things. Biblical love says, I love you, therefore I accept anything you do and everything you are. And Bible love says, I love you, and no, I do not accept you just the way you are or with everything you do. Because I love you. See how that difference that works? So we are to call to, to live the kind of life and we are to have an impact on this unbelieving world. Then we must be people who live like what we believe. <clears throat> but too often we believers, we become so self-absorbed and so inward looking that we are simply oblivious to how we are perceived by our unbelieving neighbors. Let me ask you a question. If I were to go to your neighbor and knock on his door and say, Oh, Tim, how well you know old Tim. What do you think about Tim? Is Tim a good guy? Is Tim a nice guy? Is Tim a good neighbor? I wonder how many times I would hear him say, you know, Tim drives me nuts telling me about the gospel. I've had enough of it. Tim talks about Christ constantly. Would I hear that? Or would he say, you know, yeah, Tim is a good guy. He's a great neighbor. No Christ at all. You see, you can be a good neighbor and go to hell. <laughs> we must tell people about Christ. How, the life we live must, <clears throat> how they perceive us. Paul says, making the best use of time there in verse 15, uh, 5. Making the best use of time. Don't waste it. <coughs> Believers, let me tell you something. <coughs> the Bible teaches that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my life. Every second of it. Every second. Now, let me, let me clarify here that as a believer in Christ, my sin will not be included in this. That's already been taken care of. That's a settled issue. But God will say to me, I put you in this church, in this town, in this place, with these people. What would you do with it? I gave you this wife, these children, these grandchildren. What would you do with them? I'm going to give answers to things like that. By the way, so are you. Paul says, don't waste your time. Make the best use of your time. 
And Paul is bringing all that he has said in this letter into sharp and practical focus. It is only as we get our heads and our hearts wrapped around the things that really matter in life. The things that really matter in life. In terms of God's dealings with our world through His Son, that we will indeed learn to pray. You know what prayer does? Prayer says is me saying to God, I can't do anything about this. I don't know what to do. I need you. And Jesus said, if we ask anything in his name according to his will, he'll do it. We need to live and speak in a way that is shaped by those things that matter most. You know, over in 1 Peter <clears throat> Chapter 3, Peter says, 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, there, there's a procession here we must look at. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Is Christ the, the Lord holy in your life? Then, Paul, then Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Does the world outside see that there is a hope in you? Does the world outside see that, 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 that despise wars and rumors of wars, that despite rising gas prices, rising food prices, that despite totally corrupt governments, God is still on the throne? God is still in control. <clears throat> Did you know, and, and you know, I, this was very convicting to me. When somebody pointed out to me, do you know why Joe Biden is president? That's right, because God said he would be. And you know what I do when I complain about him? No, seriously, I'm complaining against the will of God. Do you know that Vladimir Putin did not attack the Ukraine on his own? He did it because God said to. Now, I don't understand that, okay? I'm not saying I understand. But, but what I'm, the point I'm making is this. God is sovereign in this world, in His creation. He is sovereign over it. And, and the, the, the hand of God is the hand that moves everything. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. Paul tells us concerning Jesus Christ, it says that he is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. You ever heard that old song, he's got the whole world in his hand? Listen, that's not true. He's got the whole universe in his hands. It's his he controls it. And so Paul is saying, look, <clears throat> Christian, make the best use of your time. Understand that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. He says, pray. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Wives, be in submission to your husbands because you're in submission to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church because you love Christ. Children, obey your parents because you obey Christ. Slaves, be submission to your masters because as a slave you're in submission to your master. But see, it all comes back to one place. Where? God. It all comes back to Him. It all comes back to Christ. And this is what Paul's point in the whole letter is. Pointing them to Christ. And that's what we are called to do. Let's pray. 
Our most gracious Father, Lord, as we come this morning, we thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the institute of marriage. Father, that you have ordained all things according to your will and purpose. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to stand upon the truth of your word, not allow the world or the culture around us to dictate what we believe. Father, we know your word is truth. We know that Christ is the embodiment of that truth. We thank you that he is sufficient. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, that our salvation is not based on what we do or don't do or anything about us. But it's all about what he has done and what he continues to do. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Amen.